On Tuesday afternoon, I hopped a plane in Tucson, Arizona to fly back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, having spent five full days at, an, at the annual meeting of the Reformed Church in America called the General Synod. Uh, who wouldn't want to spend five days in a hotel lobby down in Arizona? Some of the meeting was filled with some tense moments, as you can imagine, but by the time I was hopping on the plane on Tuesday afternoon, I was eager and excited to get back to the people I love, to do the job I love most, preach here with all of you. So I hopped on the plane on Tuesday at 1.38 in Tucson, flew to Dallas, Dallas to Grand Rapids, with all the best intentions to focus my heart and mind on those two plane rides to write a sermon. That was my hope. That was my intention. So I did what every self-respecting preacher would do. I started watching a movie, News of the World, starring Tom Hanks. I thought it was good. I recommend it. Uh, News of the World takes place in Texas just after the Civil War in rural Texas. Tom Hanks travels by horseback through the paths of rural Texas into every town, everywhere Texas to simply read the news. He would read the newspaper to grandmas and grandpas, kids and parents to to lift them up out of the myopy of their daily lives, out of their get-to-the-next-meal-to-survive lives. He'd read stories of other people in other places, news of the world. And I kind of feel like that today. I kind of feel like Tom Hanks in News of the World, sharing stories of other people in other places to lift us up out of whatever challenge overwhelms us and circumstances overtaking us, whatever pressure is keeping us down, to lift us up with a bigger story, a better story. This one from the Old Testament, from 1 Samuel chapter 16. Just listen to it now. You can find it in a minute. This story will knock your socks off. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, For I have chosen from among his sons a king. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me, the one whom I name to you. And Samuel did as the Lord commanded. He went to the city of Bethlehem. The elders of the city came out to meet him, trembling. They said to him, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He sanctified Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on appearances 
or the height of his stature, for I have rejected him as king. The Lord does not see as humans see. They look on outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. So Jesse had Abinadab pass before Samuel, and Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. So Jesse brought Shammah before Samuel, and Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse brought seven of his sons before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And Jesse said to Samuel, the youngest is not here, but, but, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said, send and bring him. We will not sit down till he comes here. He was uh, ruddy with beautiful eyes and handsome. And when he came, the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that time forward. And Samuel went out and went to Ramah. And the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit tormented him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's 1 Samuel 16. Go ahead and find it. Now let me bring you up to speed as to this place in the story. Christians think God made the whole world and made it really good. God made everything out of nothing. But the great catastrophe happened. We call it the fall. And the world was sent into brokenness. Creation itself was broken. Our hearts were broken. Our determination to do the right thing was broken. The systems we create to order our lives, all of them were broken. But God isn't willing to leave us broken. God shows up time and time again into our brokenness to put the pieces back together. He showed up to broken Noah with an ark and to broken Abram and Sarai with a promise and to broken Isaac with a ram and to broken Jacob with a dream. God showed up to broken Ruth with a home and broken Esther with a perfect moment. God keeps showing up to put the broken pieces back together again. He showed up to Moses and he showed up to the little boy Samuel in the night. Little boy Samuel, who would become the prophet Samuel. He showed up to, prophet, to the prophet Samuel and sent him to King Saul, sent him because King Saul had turned his heart to a dark side. He sent him to Jesse to choose from among his sons a king to replace Saul. So Jesse chooses, of course, the firstborn, Eliab, the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the fittest. Samuel himself said, surely the Lord's anointed is now standing before the Lord. Eliab's name means my God is father, but he wasn't the one. So Jesse grabs Abinadab. His name means my father is noble, but he wasn't the one. So Jesse finds Shammah. His name means is there. Shammah, the thirdborn of so many sons. Of course, he's just there. If, you've ever, if you're the thirdborn, you know exactly what it means to be just there. He's not the one either. So 
Seven other sons are paraded before Samuel. None of them are the one. And finally, Samuel says to Jesse, are there any others? And Jesse says to Samuel, well, there's the youngest, but he's, he's clearly not capable of this task. Samuel says, go and get him. And David shows up, ruddy David, beautiful-eyed David, handsome David. His skin was so soft. Adolescent acne had not yet taken its toll. Sweet little, cute little teenage David, maybe 15, 13, 14, 15 years old. David, so incapable of accomplishing this task, isn't even invited to the party. And yet the Lord says, rise up and anoint him. This is the one. We'll come back to David in just a second, but for now I'm wondering, have you ever asked Samuel's question? How can I? Samuel asks. The Lord shows up to Samuel and says, I want you to go to Jesse to choose from among his sons a king to replace Saul. And Samuel says, how can I? How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. If Saul hears of it, he'll take me out. If Saul hears of it, I'm done. How can I? How can I, Samuel wonders, how can I, Samuel asks, how can I? I'm guessing you've thought once or twice at least yourself. How can I make it another day in this cotton-picking world pandemic? How can I make it through this holiday season without my beloved for the first time? How can I stare depression straight in the face or deal with the anxieties that make my stomach spin or tend to the insecurities and the fears that come with the depression and the anxiety? How can I? Have you ever? It's actually kind of a refrain throughout the Bible when God showed up to Moses and said, I want you to be the spokesperson of freedom and deliver my people from slavery. What did Moses ask? What did Moses say? How can I? And then, and then Zechariah, we'll get to Zechariah on the first Sunday in Advent, Halloween next weekend, Thanksgiving a few weeks later, and then Advent, Zechariah, an angel shows up to Zechariah, though his wife was barren, the angel said, you're going to be a dad, and your boy will prepare the way for my son. What does Zechariah say? What does Zechariah ask? How can I? And then maybe, maybe the definitive example, Mary, the mother of Jesus herself, who when the angel, angel announced to her the immaculate conception, what did she say? What did she ask? How can I? It's a refrain throughout the biblical witness. It's a refrain in our lives too. How can I? I'm not this enough, and I'm not that enough. How can I? A couple of years ago, it was maybe five or six years ago, our second daughter, Tabitha, was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Basically, her body was attacking itself and specifically attacking her kidneys. We spent the better part of a year and a half, more than that actually, traveling up to Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, the Helen DeVos Children's Hospital. First, it started out weekly. The weekly consultations became a cocktail of steroids that wreaked havoc on her body. That gave way to several different procedures, basically surgeries that required a full anesthetic, kidney biopsies to see how much damage had been done. 
the way it works at Children's Hospital, you walk into the operating room with your child. They prepare, in this case, Tabitha, with the Winnie the Pooh gown. Now, we, we had prepped Tabitha for how this was going to go. We told her about the IV and the drug called propofol that was going to put her to sleep. I said, they're going to put you to sleep, which she took to mean something other than I meant. They were trying to get the IV in, but because of the autoimmune disease, her, her veins kept collapsing. Seven, eight, nine, ten tries, they just kept collapsing, so they decided to give her that magic air called laughing gas. She took one inhale and her eyes went foggy. She started staring at her hand. She started looking past our eyes. We were like hazy blobs of humankind. And then I, they finally got the IV into her ankle and I whispered into sweet Tabby's ear, okay, sweet stuff. They're going to give you the propofol now. And her eyes focused and she reached out her hand and she said, I love you guys. She went fast asleep. And then they invited Kristen and I to walk out of the OR. And guess what I asked? I know I asked it in my spirit. I'm pretty sure I said it out loud. How can I? How can I leave my sweet one on this hospital bed in your capable but still not my hands? How can I leave this room? How can I? They didn't really care what I was wondering, so they escorted us down the hall. We sat in the waiting room, which... It felt like five days, turned out to be 90 minutes. We sat there with our knees bobbing and our hands sweating. After about 20 minutes, we just started to cry. After about an hour, Kristen went into the bathroom and wept. Tabby's doing great now. Here's actually a picture of Tabitha laying in that hospital bed. And then this is her now. She's clearly doing quite a bit better. But I'm wondering, have you ever found yourself in that spot? How can I? God does not seem opposed to putting us in positions that prompt the questions, how can I? Not because he's cruel and not because he's manipulative, but because he knows something he wants us to experience. God's presence, his purpose, his intentions, his desire for our lives. He's willing to put us into positions of discomfort, Though we may not like them, we may find ourselves asking, how can I? Only for God to show up. We say, how can I? God says, I'll show up. And Samuel's question becomes God's proclamation. If you're taking notes, Samuel's question is the first point. God's proclamation is the second. We ask, how can I? Samuel eventually goes to Bethlehem, 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 Bethlehem. Let that stand out to you for a moment. Samuel shows up to Bethlehem, finds Jesse and his boys. The whole town realizes something significant is happening. Samuel, the prophet Samuel, King Saul's prophet Samuel is in town. The elders of the city, they're nervous. What does this mean? What's he going to do? Do you come peaceably? Samuel says peaceably. He says out loud peaceably. I'm assuming in the back of his mind, he's thinking to himself, I come peaceably, but if you see Saul, get out of here. He sanctifies them and invites them to the sacrifice. He sanctifies Jesse and his boys and invites them to the sacrifice too. And what does Jesse do? He brings the fastest and the brightest and the biggest and the best. He brings Eliab. 
Eliab, he's been out doing his brothers for a long time. Eliab, Jesse plays the part of an, of an announcer at a heavyweight boxing match on a Friday night. In this corner, six feet, six inches tall, 245 pounds, Eliab the warrior, and the crowd applauds, and the family nods, and I'm imagining Eliab's mob, mom standing next to her, her sisters, and they pat her on the back, your boy, your firstborn, and uh, Samuel himself is like, wow, Eliab, surely the Lord's anointed now stands before the Lord, and the Lord says, nope. And, 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 and Samuel's thinking to himself, whoa, whoa, God, we, 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 Saul's nipping at our heels. Saul is after us. We, we need a fighter with us, God. Go big or go home, God. And God says, nope. Okay, okay. So they get Abinadab. Abinadab's not bad either. He's, he's held his own a few times against Eliab. El, Abinadab is paraded before Samuel. Nope. Shama too. Shama's there. He's there. He's always been there. God says, nope. Seven brothers before Samuel. Not one of them. Samuel says to Jesse, Are the, is this all of them? And Jesse says, well, technically no, but these are the only capable ones. Samuel says, well, where, where's the other? Okay, go get David. David shows up. I'm imagining David skipping along, David whistling, twirling his finger through his long hair. It says David was ruddy, beautiful eyes, and handsome. So incapable of this task, he wasn't even invited to the party. And the whole story spins around this line. Do not look at appearances or the height of his stature. For the Lord does not see as humans see. They look at outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. That's God's proclamation. The Lord looks at the heart. We spend so much time pursuing bigger and faster and better and smarter and fitter. All the while, the Lord looks at the heart. We, we work our resumes to look better than the next guy. We, we work our vitas to be better than the next professor. We do whatever we can to tend to our outward appearances. All the while, God looks at the heart. So maybe take a little time this week. Maybe take a little time to borrow from the psalmist, search me, O God, and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Or in a different place, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. We ask, how can I, thinking ourselves incapable, all the while God looks at the heart, tend to your heart. Sadly, our hearts never seem to get right. We just, I mean, maybe there's glimpses and maybe there's moments and maybe there's even seasons, but consistently our hearts just aren't right. David comes frolicking into the scene. The Lord looks on his heart and chooses David, but if you know the rest of the story, you know what happens. David does eventually become king. First, he's the flutist in Saul's court, and then he, then he becomes the, the rock-slinging warrior that takes down the gargantuan giant Goliath. 
Then he takes down Saul too. He becomes king. People love him. He brings the, he brings the ark back to Jerusalem. The people praise David. Oh, David. David gets bored with his job. David starts snooping around in other people's business, finds a woman that's not his wife that he finds quite attractive, manipulates her to come to himself. She gets pregnant. David kills her husband, covers over the whole scene like a John Grisham novel. And guess who shows up? Guess who shows up to King David? King David, who's read his own press. King David, who's believed his own praise. King David, who's gone the way of Saul. Guess who shows up? A prophet shows up. A prophet shows up, remembering this moment years earlier back in Bethlehem. A prophet shows up and says to David, in other words, the Lord does not look on outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart, and your heart is not right. The story keeps unfolding. The story keeps going on. These these wonderful moments in the story of what appeared to be redemption seem always to give way to brokenness again. So finally, in the fullness of time, God put his heart on full display in his child, Jesus Christ. He took on what we are so we could become like he is. He became the infant child born back in Bethlehem again. The Bethlehem child would become the crucified king, crucified for the forgiveness of every one of our sins and the sins of the whole world. He went to the grave to defeat the systems of sin that exist in our lives and in the world. He rose up in resurrection to make our hearts clean. The Lord looks on the heart and sees his son, Jesus, who heals our hearts. So you're then equipped for every good work because you follow Jesus, the healer of the heart. This is why Paul would say, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is why St. John would say, all who have received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. This is why Peter could stand up and preach and borrowing from Joel would say, the spirit of the Lord has come upon all flesh. Our hearts, the story of our hearts is always returning to brokenness, but the story of God's heart is the story of his son who heals our hearts. The Lord looks on the heart and sees his son who makes our hearts right. So you're equipped for every good work. We ask, how can I? God says, because of my son, your heart is clean. On Wednesday, I had this stunningly beautiful conversation with, I think, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, I think the oldest member of the Pillar community, 98 years old, Beanie Deacom, a born in 1923, one of 10 children. Her dad uh, served on the council of Pillar Church in the 19-teens when Pillar was debating whether or not it should move from worshiping in Dutch to worshiping in English. Here's a picture of that council. Uh, Her dad died when he was 47 years old. For reference, I'm 45. Her dad died when he was 47. Beanie was six years old. Can you imagine? Her younger brother would grow. He was the smart one. He was going to be a doctor. He went uh, off into the military, and while 
just as World War II was coming to an end, he was flying a plane that crashed in the United States and took his life. Her mom never recovered. She married. He went off to World War II as well, fought in the Pacific. He would never talk about the war. 98 years old, you're going to experience a lot of life. She lost a a grandchild at 13 months old and a daughter-in-law at an age way too young, 98 years old, you're going to experience a lot of life. All kinds of pain and all kinds of hope, all kinds of challenges and all kinds of successes. As we talked on Wednesday afternoon, she was meandering with me through all of these experiences. She read for me a bulletin from Pillar from 1970. She kept the bulletin from 1970, and in it, it invites Hope College students to a lunch that afternoon. She showed me a picture of the five previous pastors of Pillar Church. I thought you might like to see this one, Pastor Chris from a long time ago. We meandered our way through the joys and the pains, and at some point, I don't know if I prompted it or if she just offered it, she said, Jesus has led me the whole way. Strength for the day, bright hope for tomorrow, borrowing from the hymn. I loved that. 98 years old, Beanie. Beanie, such a gentle spirit, such a kind heart. Beanie, Jesus has led me the whole way. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Think of all she's experienced in 98 years. How many times must she have been presented with the question, how can I? And God keeps showing up to her and to you and to us. How can I, we wonder, And God says, my son, Jesus will lead us the whole way. Strength for today. Bright hope for tomorrow. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.